Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with DJ Bone. He's been releasing techno and DJing for over two decades, but ever since his different EP arrived on Don't Be Afraid last year, he's burst back into the circuit in a huge way. Though the truth is, he's never really been away. Talking to Carlos Hawthorne at Block Festival, Dylan gives an insight into his mentality in the booth and the studio, and speaks out against the idea that he's on a comeback. Because for anyone willing to do a little research, Dylan has always been amongst Detroit's finest. You can hear our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with DJ Bone is up next. Thanks for coming. Thanks, of course, to Block and uh, Lemmy for putting this on. Yeah, welcome to a live edition of our Resident Advisors Exchange, uh, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Carlos Hawthorne. I'm a staff writer at RA. And today I'm going to be talking to the man to my left, Eric Doolin, aka DJ Bone. <laughs> when it comes to techno, DJ Bone wears his heart on his sleeve. He's one of the most thrilling performers in the game, and at times in the past 20 plus years, he's also been one of its most outspoken voices. Few embody the Motor City's soulful, fiercely independent spirit as much as he does. How do you feel about having your career summed up in three lines like that? <laughs> it sounds better than most people put it. <laughs> if they know me, then that pretty much, yeah, that sums it up. So last night you headlined Jack. Yeah. How did it go for you? Jack was good. I liked it. It was... Um, I liked the room because it, was, it wasn't huge, but it wasn't tiny. It was just perfect size, and uh, so I could get a good vibe going. The crowd was, was off the hook. It was really, really amazing that I could go in there and, in a festival kind of environment and play deep and, you know, really go with the crowd like that. I heard a bit of Kendrick Lamar in there. <laughs> you heard that? Yeah. Nice. I like you a fan? Uh, I'm a huge fan of Kendrick Lamar, man. I, I had... This thing where my daughter gave me, for Father's Day, she gave me Kendrick Lamar's album on vinyl. And it was such a great gift. And her favorite track is uh, the, called Real. So just to honor her, and because I love the song's lyrics, I would play Real at the end of my set sometimes. And it's hard for you to fit in a hip-hop song in a techno set and people actually, you know, not look at you like you're crazy. So I, I didn't want to just keep doing that and make it a stick. So I took real and I just did a re-edit of my favorite lyrics from the song and that's that's what I played out last night. 
Nice. I mean, Kendrick Lamar is one of the kind of most fiercely political, socially conscious artists working today in America. Do you consider yourself a political person? I'm very political. It's in a logical sense. It's not in a raving lunatic, you know, uh, this is the only way and no one else is right kind of sense. But I like to stay abreast of things and I like to make sure that I can get my point across and still be civil about it. You know, but you have to be political. Even in DJing and, and making music, you name it, you, you still have to be, it all comes down to politics sometimes. Yeah, cause I was thinking in particular of some of the track titles, EP titles, you've had a few references to slavery, yeah. um, subjugation, uh, water slaves, ship life. Yeah. Just getting those kind of messages across is important to you. Yeah, it's really important because there's not a lot of young black kids who want to make techno. You know what I mean? They want to be Jay-Z and they want to be Kendrick Lamar. They don't want to be Jeff Mills or, or DJ Bone, you know. So we want to try and find those ones who want to be different because we were different growing up. And we didn't feel out of sorts at all because Detroit was a different place. So that's the place to be. You know, that old song uh, from Green Velvet, La La Land, the place where the misfits fit, that's Detroit. You know, it was just everybody was themselves and it, it didn't feel out of sorts. So the politics for me, it's part of who I am, but it's also, you know, I have to have a message. I can't just make a track and put it out. It has to have something behind it because I grew up on a lot of music that was like that. You know, what's going on, Marvin Gaye. It had a message and it sounded good, it was funky, but they made sure that they were teaching you something in that song. And there's not much of that in techno anymore. You mentioned Detroit there and I, I definitely want to speak more about it later but I just want to go back to to block it's where we are this is your second year playing the festival is that right yeah yeah first year was last year I'm just curious of what an American makes of a place like Butlins <laughs> it's funny we couldn't do this in America but the only reason we couldn't do it is because America would everyone would sue everybody everybody have to lawyer up and then they say oh you know you can't do that because you might get hurt and if you get hurt then you're going to sue us and then we're going to close down because we owe you money so to see this I, I love it, and things like this. You know, I've seen some outlandish stuff before, but, you know, the whole amusement park type thing, it, it fits. I like it, though. I like the atmosphere. Nice. And you've always had a, would you say you've always had a special relationship with the UK in particular? I have. I have. My first few gigs outside of the U.S., I went to Brighton and played down there. I went to uh, Portsmouth and played a party called Gushki. I went to... London and played a really nice club. It was called The Complex back in the day. So it's always been a really good relationship. And then it just kind of, at some point, the UK started to go a little bit with the trend of music. And I just stayed bone, you know? So I wasn't dubstep. I wasn't tech house. I wasn't the new minimal. You know, I said the new minimal, not minimal. So I just stayed me. And I just wait. So they dip or they go, you know, like this. And then eventually it just comes back. So I'm not impatient about it. So now I've been back in the UK like crazy. You know, I love it. Are you always confident that it will come back? Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, people argue this, but to me, the, the foundation of techno is Detroit for me. So if the foundation is Detroit, then you can build whatever you want, you know, on top of it. Whenever it crumbles, the foundation is solid. It's still there. So when the new minimal crumbles, it falls right on to Detroit, and then it starts to disintegrate and go away. You know, if it's tech house, if it's trance, if it's whatever it is, whatever the trendy type of thing is, it all comes back 
to Detroit. You ever notice that? There's no other sound where you can say, oh, the hot stuff right now is this. And then about a year and a half later, everybody's promo has the one sheet, and it's Detroit-esque, Detroit-ish, Detroit-like sound, and everything is described in that manner. You don't hear them say anything else you know, for any other city like that when they describe their electronic music release. You know? So it's kind of, that's the foundation, I think. And when you first started coming to Europe, and you, um, I mean, what years were they when you first came here? Oh, 97, I think. Was the first time? 19, yeah, I'm old. I'm older. It's 1996 or 97, and I came over. And um, long story short, the reason I, I was able to come over was because of Laurent Garnier. Came to Detroit, played a party, told me that he wanted to have dinner the next day. We went and had dinner, and he told me that I had to come to Europe. He was like, "You, you have no idea. You need to come there." He said, "You will be playing there all the time," and I was just a kid. I was a kid, bartending going to college, you know, university, and DJing on the weekends to get my money back for the vinyl I bought during the week. And that was it, you know. And he said, give me a few months. I gave him a few months. He hit me up, and he brought me over and played the Rex Club and then took me to the album release party with the press for his album 30. So he, he kind of just threw me in the water and was like, this is how this goes, this is how this goes, this is how this goes. Okay, now you're good. And that was it, and I haven't looked back. And living in Detroit, what was your impression of Europe? It was different. I loved it, though. I loved it. I would still get homesick, you know, if I was gone too long. But I just liked the freedom. I liked the logical sense of being able to do something and have to be responsible for yourself. You can't go and do something stupid and then turn around and, and point and blame somebody. You just couldn't do that. You know, I didn't see that happening in Europe all the time. In America, it's everybody else's fault. No one takes the personal responsibility and says, you know what, you got me, I messed up. So I like that, uh, not to mention certain food items that I'd never tasted before. I never had beans on toast, and now I'm hooked on beans on toast. I love beans on toast. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> the architecture is what really struck me. I studied architecture in college, and I could just walk every day and just look at the buildings especially doors. I'm a huge fan of really nice, rustic, historic doors. And I, it was just amazing because America's so young, you know. So I, all that struck me. It was really nice. And in terms of the parties, I mean, were the atmosphere different? Well, yeah. And Detroit is really dirty. You know, it's really dirty. It's really underground. You name it. I mean, you just have some parties in the most ridiculous places. So here, it was the same vibe, but it was cleaner for lack of a better term. It was a nicer place, good lighting. You didn't have to warn everybody about a hole in the floor over there or, you know. It was safe and, and it was a good vibe. And they paid a lot more attention to sound systems. You know, in Detroit, you just basically had to work with what you had. Yeah. And you couldn't always have the best sound. But, you know, when I came over here, I saw how people were striving to make sure that every single aspect I mean, first time I played at the Rex, the DJ booth was air-conditioned. And I just laughed. I thought that was the, I thought that was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> and Laurent's looking at me. He's like, what are you laughing at? I says, air-conditioned? What is that? And then he, he, there's like a sliding glass window. You can close it off, and the people are outside. I was like, what is this? This is crazy. You know, I learned from 
DJing in Detroit early on, I don't look up much. And the reason I don't is because I'm focused and I, I'm just trying to make people feel what I'm doing and, and have an interaction that way as opposed to, you know, I see you with the blue hat, you know. So now I'm interacting with you. So now you feel like, oh, I have to respond or smile or do something or wave. Mm -mm. It's natural. When you don't look and somebody responds to what you're doing, it's natural. So I would measure heat and I would just go by how hot the room was. If it's hot, people are dancing. It's simple physics. If it starts to cool off, either people are leaving or they're not dancing. So I'm not doing something right. And that's all I did. So to go into an air-conditioned booth just threw me off. I was like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> um, it's really interesting say, hearing you say that about not looking up from the crowd because more traditional approaches to DJing will say that DJing is all about looking at the crowd. It's all about reading the room and yeah. getting the atmosphere and then translating that through to the music. I mean, you have such a confidence in what you're doing. I had to, basically. I come from the city of uh, Jeff Mills, Derek May, Claude Young. Amazing DJs, you know what I mean? So you couldn't just go and spin. You couldn't just go and play a party. You had to go and you had to basically give it everything, 110%. Otherwise, people wouldn't pay attention to you. They wouldn't look at you. They wouldn't want to hear you. It would be the same old people, you know? Because back then, it wasn't about what record you made. It was about how well you could DJ. Like Terrence Parker. You know, there are so many unsung DJs, Gary Chandler in Detroit, Godfather, that are phenomenal. You know, people might not have heard of. So you had to basically go in there and show and prove every time. So my job is to bring the best music I have and play it the best of my ability. I don't have to look at the crowd in order to do that because I'm in charge. I know what's hot, right? So I know three records ahead. So if I look at the crowd, I'm taking a mental picture right now because I want to look up again in two or three records because I know exactly what you're about to experience. I know what I got coming at you, you know? And to see it unfold, that's the best and it's true if you watch Jeff Mills DJ he it's, doesn't look up once and he's yeah, so concentrated he does, does he? what he's doing yeah and then you might see him he's not somebody who's going to dance around you know he might wiggle a little bit that's the point where you know that even he's in the zone and he's feeling it you know you have all kinds you have like Derek May looks at the crowd all the time but he's an in your face kind of guy to begin with so his personality exudes that he's almost like daring you to not dance you know, he's like coming at you with all this music and he's just looking at you like, I, I dare you not to dance to this, you know? <laughs> and you can't help it. You're like, okay, you got me, I got me, I'm dancing. It's almost like superheroes. You know, you got Batman, Superman, you know, and then we have a few, we got Aquaman. You know, Aquaman outside of water, what can you do? But he's still a superhero. So everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and I think that's how it works really well that way. When you're coming up as a DJ in Detroit, was it a competitive environment? Yeah, it was very competitive, but in a good way. You would have parties, and you could have four DJs on the flyer, and maybe two would play. And the other two would not be upset. Because our main goal was to make sure the party was as good as it could possibly be. So somebody's up there, and they're rocking. You don't stop them. You don't stop them and say, sorry, time. No. Because then you're, you're hurting everybody who's getting their groove on right now. Why? So you let him play. If he's hot and he's killing it, you just, even if you can't stand the guy, you know, it's a respectful thing. So once the crowd starts to taper off or get tired or, you know, you can just tell. Or the temperature, you know, then, okay, who's up next? 
And that's how it is. So it's competitive, but it's in a, it was in a respectful way. And you mentioned there this kind of need to be different, to stand out from the crowd in order to make an impression. Is that something that's been in you as a person from young? Have you felt different? I've always felt different, but only because of, of growing up in Detroit. Detroit's such a city that uh, it's unlike anywhere else. So you don't know that it's different at the time. You just kind of go through life and you do your thing. People are shooting, you know, your parents warn you about certain things. All this stuff happens, and it's normal. It was my normal. So being different for me was normal. I don't know, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I didn't see any reason to try and be what other people would consider different or just dress up just to dress up or try and get attention. We would do it because, you know, like when Electric Boogaloo came out and we are wearing scrubs and a captain's hat, it was because we were fans of Electric Boogaloo, Breaking 2 or something. It really wasn't to get attention. It was just a, a city where you could freely express yourself. The most striking thing about your DJ persona or your DJ style is, is the way you incorporate the three decks or even more into your mixing. I mean, was that a kind of very obvious way for you to stand out from the rest? Yeah, I, I used it as an opportunity to stand out. I started to do that just because I was, I was really bored DJing with two decks. For me, in my logic, you know, when you first learn how to DJ, the first thing you do is match the beat. Now, if you DJ for five years and 10 years and 15 years, all you do is still match the beat, then to me, you haven't progressed enough. Just in my, for my personal, I would feel bad for myself and say, what are you doing, man? You know, you got to push it. You got to push it. Because I was that kind of guy. It wasn't about standing out just to stand out. It was about pushing the limits of DJing, of the physicality of DJing. All my friends, my family, my wife, they say the same thing. They, they come up, like if they're at the gig, they'll come up and they have drinks and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, why are you guys always trying to get me? They, oh, you play better when you're drunk. I'm like, what do you mean? And what they were saying is basically you take more risks because you don't care. And I care enough to make sure that the party's going to be dope, but I'm willing to risk it like in gymnastics somebody might try that extra twist on a flip and if they pull it off then the crowd's like oh crap look at that that's what i'm looking for so you think there should be a strong performance element to djing yeah i i think it has to suit the person though because i know a lot of djs who just blend who just beat match and are phenomenal right. you know what i mean not everybody has to do all kind of the crazy tricks and stuff but you have to find some way to push yourself forward you know, what I'm saying is like the basic four beat mix and then you move the fader over and then you're like, yeah, I did it. No, I see people who can, you know, blend two records forever or just cut certain frequencies to make sure they can stay together when normally they shouldn't because they would clash. Things like that, you know, or knowing how to progress the vibe of the room and then just yank it out if you want to. I've seen that before too. I've seen some phenomenal people. It's not always about the physical skill. It's about skill, but not always about the physical. And I know Jeff Mills was playing with three decks famously as the wizard. Was there anyone else in Detroit doing it? Um, not that I know of, honestly. I don't recall any other person who would play three decks on the regular. And I still don't, to right now, nobody really, you know, will go up there and ride on three decks for a whole set. You know, I've seen them do it occasionally but not every setup, you know? 
So, I mean, what do you think that it brings musically to your performances? Well, what it allows me to, like I said, to create, I can almost speed up the set. It's almost like pushing the fast-forward button because now, instead of playing when Jaguar was hot, instead of playing all of Jaguar, now, if I'm playing a three-deck set, and all of a sudden, in the middle of these beats, you just hear, boom, 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 that's all you need. Yeah. I could do that and then just leave it for that four seconds and not even have to play the whole song. But just then, it's just kind of flying past people, and they're like, did I just hear Jaguar? Oh, and then something else is happening, and two records are playing, and then you EQ, and then you move the fader a little bit. So now, it's like an overload, and that's what I'm talking about when it gets hot, and I know what you're about to experience, because I'm really thinking, I'm going to try and freak you out, but my main concern is not to get carried away. I know a lot of DJs who, who do mess with it and do doubles and tricks, and then when they're finished, you basically have to stop while they're doing it because it's offbeat. It's not on the rhythm. So when I move the fader, when I do something, I want to keep the beat. That's the, the key. So when I do take it out, you might be, what is this guy? But then when I bring it back in, it's right on the beat where it's supposed to be. That was the goal, is to not stop the momentum. You know, Even if I take something out or alter it somehow, I don't want to stop the momentum. I want to make sure that when I bring it back, you know, that's really a big focus for me. And you have kind of specific tricks that you incorporate every time? It all depends. Honestly, I let the song dictate it. Because when I use the fader, I don't do it the same exact way for every song. I listen to the song, and then I hear certain parts that just stand out. And I'm like, okay, I can accent these parts. And that's, to me, it's like a separate beat. So it could be the bass line, it could be strings, chords, it could be anything. It could be a straight up, you know, techno song with some toms with the kicks, you know, I can make it into a tribal track just from manipulating the, the fader, because that's what I'm hearing. Clearly that's what sets you apart from the rest and makes you original, and you've spoken a lot in your career about people who you think are unoriginal mm -hmm. and who, who are copycats, and I just wanted to know where you think, where you draw the line between a copycat and someone who is influenced or takes inspiration from another artist. Uh, copycats are basically people who who see some someone or something and they just, they, they, they copy it. You know, they, they mimic the style and then try and pass it off as their own. When you're influenced, you pay uh, a certain amount of homage to the person or the thing that influenced you. You don't just, you know, do it and then say, ha ha, look at me, look what I did. It's almost like how Prince is a, a big melting pot of, you know, Little Richard, James Brown, you know what I mean? Sly and the Family Stone. And he pays homage by the way he plays. You can tell that he's giving a nod to that, you know? So it would be like me rapping like Kendrick Lamar and then trying to, yeah. you know, if you know somebody's been doing it that way, if you know that that's their style and you purposely copy it, then I think it's wrong. Do you feel you, that's happened to you in the oh, past? Yeah, it's happened a lot, yeah. Yeah. But it's happened from people I don't know, people I know, friends, you know. It's happened. And there's been people who are hilarious about it. One, one big name DJ, I, I was in London, and I played at his club, and I know him, and he doesn't do a, he doesn't chop it up with the fader at all. And then I came back. This was a long time ago, like 99. And then I stayed an extra week, and I came back just to surprise him. And I come in, and I could see it. I saw the crowd, and I could hear he's going, foot, 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 foot. And he's struggling a little bit, and the crowd's just kind of standing there looking at him. 
And I go and I look and I go, what is he doing? So I walk up to the booth and I just stand there. And then finally he turns and he goes, oh, hey, 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 Bone, what's up, man? I said, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just trying to be like you, mate. Just trying to be like you. And it was funny, you know, because it was inspiring because he was a really well-known guy. So for him to do that, you know, I didn't take offense to it at all. I was like, maybe he's trying something new, you know, why not? Go back to your DJing in Detroit. What was it that first attracted you about, about it? Because you used to go to these parties at the Music Institute yeah. and see the guys. Was that your first inspiration? No, I'd say The Wizard on the radio. Jeff Mills as The Wizard, some of the best DJ sets I've ever heard. He would play hip-hop and everything, disco. Between that, Electrifying Mojo was a radio DJ who would play a free format. He could play everything. So I would hear Run DMC, Parliament, B-52s, Jay Giles Band, anything that he thought people needed to hear. So you had a lot of black people listening to a lot of unusual music for black people to be listening to. So that inspired me. And then I went to the Music Institute and heard uh, D. Wynn, Derek May, Alta Miller. And I was too young, so I'd, get, I'd sneak in the back. And it was the best environment because it wasn't anything seedy about it. You know, nobody's parents were upset that you would go to the Music Institute because it was a pitch black room with a couple of strobe lights, no alcohol. They served no alcohol whatsoever, right? No Strict no drug policy. They wouldn't take your drugs. They would take your drugs and beat your ass and take you out in front and show everybody, this is what happens when you bring drugs in here. Yeah, they weren't having it, you know? And that vibe mixed with all this music that I'd never heard before. Blow Your House Down, French Kiss, Morikante, Yeke Yeke, all this stuff I'd never heard. So it would come through the speakers and I'm like, that's when I was on the tip of, I want to hear the newest and best songs possible. And that's how it started. You know, that and the fact that I was into a lot of soundtrack music, even TV shows, Mammy Vice, Jan Hammer. You know, it was just a mood. It was To me, it was just as important as the beats. And how old are you when you first started going there? 17. Yeah. And you go there pretty regularly? Yeah, I would go almost every week. So they'd run, they'd run weekly parties? Yeah, yeah, every weekend. It was a Friday, Saturday. And it was just a black, dark room, and it wasn't huge, you know. And then at the end, they had an upstairs with couches you could chill out. And you just go upstairs, and there's all windows in the front, and you, the sun would come up. And you're like, man, you know, let me get out of here and go home. Amazing. Yeah. And later you became resident at the shelter. Yeah. And then Motor. Yeah. I and mean, I was reading about Motor. It sounds like quite an interesting club. It sounded quite confused. It was. Management in very, in very it was. Um, various <laughs> ways. But you seem to have a good thing going there for a while. Yeah, yeah. Because there was a brave, it had seven owners. That's the, the thing with clubs in America. They open clubs to make money. It's not a lot of music lovers that open clubs in America. They open a club. And then they say, okay, what format can we have where people are going to buy drinks and, you know, pay whatever to get in. So Motor had opened as a cigar martini bar because that was huge. A Swingers movie was out. It was huge at the time. And they would have these anniversary parties like once every four months. And they would bring like Derek May and Kevin. And it would be packed, you know. And the Friday night, and the Friday nights were usually empty. Saturday night was the night it was packed for cigar martini. So one of the owners decided that he wanted to do a weekly like their anniversary parties, like they were due, you know, three, four times a year, every Friday. So they asked Derek, and Derek's like, nope, too busy, you know. He said, but you should get DJ Bone because he's going to start traveling soon, and, you know, you may as well get him right now. So they approached me, 
and we set it up and we started to do it. And we had some special nights. We had Laurent Garnier come play live. We had Goldie. We had Dave Angel, Dave Clark, DJ Funk. Just you name it. And we had people, we had Carl Cox, like, calling the club, saying, I need to come and play. And that was amazing, you know. People don't know back in the day, he's a huge Detroit head. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, he's a, he was pivotal in, in breaking a lot of Detroit records back in the day. So it was a good thing for a couple of years. And then the other owners kind of started sticking their, you know, paws in there. And were like, well, we can make it even more popular. And they would bring in magazines and say, let's book this guy. Let's book that guy. And I was like, please don't, you know, you're going to mess it up. And then eventually this, that's the way it went. So they kind of just, <laughs> they killed it themselves. They did it. They're just corrupted by greed. Yeah, that was it. And I, I read an interview that you said that was kind of, there hasn't been a club like that in Detroit since. No, there hasn't been. On a regular basis, like people will throw a party here and there, you know, but for a weekly resident to be playing at a club, it hasn't happened since Motor. You don't live in Detroit anymore? No, no. When did you leave? Um, about 10, uh, no, 12 years ago. But I still have houses in Detroit. So, and I'm in Detroit uh, about a third of the year. Okay. So... I call it my tour of duty. I did my tour of duty in Detroit. <laughs> but when you, when you look at things like family, raising kids and all that, and I, I have a daughter. She's, she's older now, but at the time, I didn't want her to have to go through uh, some of the same stuff that I did. You know, you can only protect her so much from things, but you have to let her immerse herself and experience the real Detroit, too. So we just had to weigh the options. That mixed with the fact that I just got tired of having to look over my shoulder every single second or every day. You can't go to the ATM, you can't go to the bank, you can't get gas at night. You know, you can in the suburbs, but in the city itself, you have to be careful all the time. Really? You can't sit in a drive-thru too close to the car in front of you. You know, so if something happens, you can't pull out. It's just, to live like that is sad. So I opted not to. I, d I broke out. So from the 90s to the 2000s, things changed quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, Detroit, it's a resilient city. It's always going to survive. It's always going to be, you know, what they call up and coming. But there's pockets of it that have been neglected for so long that it's going to take a lot to get it back on track. Because they will, you know, try and make sure that they fix up all the areas that I call the tourists will come in. The places where the people who have lived there all their lives, they don't invest money there. Sure. The, the city doesn't. Or the state doesn't. And that's sad. And where do you live now? Uh, Louisville, Kentucky. We had a house in L.A. for a while. It was nice. It was funny because Juan Atkins was like 10 minutes. He was living in L.A. He was like 10 minutes from us. So we had barbecue. And Juan Atkins just sitting there on the couch eating barbecue. But yeah, now Louisville, Kentucky, it's kind of uh, it's an hour plane ride south from Detroit. Like a four and a half hour car ride. So it's right there. It's not bad. I mean, even though you don't live there, Detroit is still very much who you are and it's total, oh, yeah. the total identity of DJ Bone. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think of that Detroit EP, you know, the lyrics in the, in the songs, Detroit is what I love, Detroit is what I need, Detroit's the air I breathe. Yeah. I wonder if you can just uh, convey kind of this sense of just this need to, to convey how proud you are of a place like Detroit. <laughs> I mean, I, I've grew up in London. I've been there for 20 years. Yeah. I don't, I love London, but I wouldn't, go out of my way to, to talk about it so much. And yeah. I know it's an American thing, I don't know. It's a Detroit thing. It's so funny. I've never met people so proud. They always say, you know, New Yorkers and, nah, nah. 
Detroit people are proud. You see Eminem, you know, stand up at the Grammys or whatever, and he's like, Detroit stand up. First thing they do is, is recognize Big Sean. They say Detroit stand up. Yeah. You know, then they make a song, Detroit versus everybody. That's how we feel. It's us against the world. So you may hate, you know, all the people who live on your block, but if you were outside Detroit and somebody was messing with one of those people, guess what? Right. It would be me and the guy I hate versus everybody. You know, that's just how we are. It's, it's, I don't know how or why. I mean, we want to wear Detroit clothes. We want to put it on our hat. Our cars have to, you know what I mean? We, we say the D about 30 times a day. Yeah. Seriously. And, and it's crazy. We talk about our restaurants like it's the best in the world. And, you know, it's just a really self-pride thing from not just living but surviving in Detroit, you know. It's an interesting paradox to to be so critical of it, but also just to love it yeah. so much. I mean, if you get together with a lot of your Detroit friends, will you you'll bitch and moan about it, but <laughs> still, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a love hate thing. Let's talk about your uh, productions, and one of the most powerful things about I think you as an artist is just you saying that you don't make music unless you need to let an emotion out. Yeah. Right, and so you need to get in the studio and really, yeah, just get that through into the machines. That must be quite a draining process sometimes. It's very draining. At one point, the process, I had to streamline it. <clears throat> I, I make it as easy for myself as possible. So I can't really go in the studio and make a song. So deadlines and me, I'm, they suck. I'm not good with deadlines. So what I do is I get an idea or a feeling or I have some emotion I need to, you know, get out and that's my therapy I just go to the studio and make something there was one point where I had a lot of stuff to get off my chest and it's funny because it resulted in at one point we had released I think it was 10 records at once and uh, all the distributors thought we were crazy they were like nobody can go in the store and buy all 10 of your records and I was like why not yeah. and so they ordered like 6 and then the 3 weeks later they came back can we, can we get the other 4 but I had a lot to say and I streamlined it. I actually took a mattress off my bed, dragged it into the studio, and I would make music until I fell asleep on the keyboard. And then I would just literally roll over boom, onto the floor. And then I would sleep. I'd wake up, I'd go eat, come back, make music. And I did that for like five days. Wow. Yeah. So it depends on, on how I'm feeling. It depends on the setting. I have a new like mobile setup that I take with me sometimes you know, an inspiration is I can get some really unique stuff out. I think it creates some really, really interesting stuff sometimes. Does it mean that there are periods when you're not making music at all? Yeah. Would they t tend to be just more stable periods in your life when you're feeling just... Because <clears throat> uh, it's not always like tragedy or something, but what it is is if I go in the studio with the intention of just making a track or making music... I could be in there for seven hours and come up with nothing. Right. And I'm making thing, everything. Like, the whole time I'm making music. And I keep it and I save it and I go back to it, you know, weeks and weeks after. And I just don't like it. Because there's nothing in there. You know what I mean? It's just a track. I've tried. I've tried my hardest to just make a dance track. A banger. And I couldn't do it. So I had to come up with a process for that. So what I do is I would make a track. And then, of course... In my mind, it's missing some soul, some kind of vibe. So I add this, add, add, add. So what I would do is I would do that. And I would label it as a track, you know, to make sure I wouldn't get it confused. 
go back two days later and subtract and just take things out. That's the only way I could do it, is to make a full song and then back it off. Right. And I couldn't just make a track and leave it because it's, I don't know, it's almost like writing a paper and you don't dot your eyes. Yeah. And it's just looking at you and you're like, oh, I can't turn that in. You know, I got to, you know, and they're saying, no, just, just turn it in without the eyes dot. That's what we want. You, you can't do it. <laughs> it's not right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how it feels to me. Do you show your music to anyone before releasing it? <laughs> yeah, my wife, my daughter, and our dog. And it's so funny because my dog has ended up on the last, uh, right before the Detroit EP, I did one called Larger Orbit, and she ended up on the track because she ran in the studio and let me know she liked the track. She barked, and then I had the mic open, and I just left it. It's in there. If you listen to it, yeah, Rhythm Soul the Funk. If you listen to it, you'll hear her. She barks right in the track. Wow. All I do is put reverb on it. I was like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and your daughter also produces yeah. music. Yeah, she, she does. She had a couple of EPs out a few years ago and is now coming back to it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. She's a beautiful kid. She's so funny. Because she would come to the studio and just look at the microphone. She wanted to talk on the microphone. And she was like, my dad is DJ Bone. He grew up in Detroit. So I thought it was the cutest thing. So I just started to record it just so I could go back and listen to it, you know, when she gets older and say, ah, you know, she used to be really nice. So, <laughs> so eventually I started to take her vocals and I put them in a track. And I played it for her and she liked it. She was like, that's really cool. It's called Platform Nine and Three Quarters mm -hmm. because she was a huge Harry Potter fan. So I let her name it. And then after that, like a year later, she came back and she was like, I want to make something. So I said, okay. You know, that's why I showed her what to do, told her about this. And she's seen me make music, you know, like forever. So she knows exactly what I'm doing. But she was like, can you just work the knobs? You know, I'll play everything. You just put it into the machine, in the computer. And I was like, okay. So I engineered it for her, you know. And then she would do it and she would play this part. And then she's like, ah, that's not right. I got to go back. So she ended up making a few songs. Mm -hmm. And they were really good. Yeah. So we put a release out on Sect. She was, and um, they call me. It was called They Call Me. And it sold like crazy. And I'm just sitting there like, holy crap, child. And I told her, I said, you can just keep making music. And of course, teenagers, you know, and they get to be teenagers. She was really young at the time. But as you get older, your taste changed. So she wasn't sure. She wanted to jump into the world of techno and, you know, do what dad does. Yeah. And I wasn't upset. So she chose that she liked acting and dancing. And since they're both arts, you know, how could I say no? So she pursued that. And now she's come back full circle and she's like, yeah, so uh, can I get a little studio time? Uh, so whenever I'm not home, she's in the studio. Nice. Yeah. Because, of course, Robert Hood's daughter, Lyric, is also... I heard. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. Oh, I love it. I love it. You should get together and... I know, right? Yeah. Maybe they can tour. <laughs> But me and Rob have to be the role manager. <laughs> yeah. That would be cool, though. I like that. I like to see that people's kids are genuinely interested and want to do that. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to force her to do it, you no. know. But I think it's really cool. I think it's really, really cool. Making music and having it as such an emotional release in that way, it must make playing these records and having people respond to them such a powerful experience. Yeah. It's like reliving that moment every night when you play it. Mm -hmm. You know, every time it, it's it's so cool. It's so cool because the crowd, 
they hear something they like and it's good enough to make them dance. That's cool. What's really cool is the fact that I know exactly why I, why I made that record. Yeah. And I'm so impressed with the crowd for liking it. I guess that's it, you know. If they knew, I don't think they would like it any less. Yeah. You know, if I said, "Okay, the reason I made Struggle is basically this self-explanatory." Yeah. You know, in Detroit, it just says the people struggle, and that's exactly how it is. It's stark, it's right in your face straight to the point. I love the fact that people can actually enjoy your art. I think it's the same with food. I think it's the same with a movie. The director's trying to tell you something. You don't have to know exactly what he's trying to get across. But if you like it, I'm sure that he's going to sit there and go, or she's going to sit there and say, yeah, you know, mission accomplished. I mean, yeah, just a word like struggle means so many different things to so many different people. But it's yeah. everyone, everyone's interpretation yeah. brings it to the party. Do you ever make music that's under circumstances that are so personal that you don't want to release it? Yeah, yeah. I have a, a ton of stuff sitting on my computer. And it's more, I guess you'd call it ambient or soundtrack music. And I might release it. Depends. I just released something on Don't Be Afraid not too long ago. It was a song about my mom when she passed away. And it was really personal. And it's a harder track. I was really angry. And halfway through, it breaks into some strings and chords. And it, it just kind of let me know, you know, she's okay. She's not hurting. She's gone, but she's okay. And... I made it, listened to it every day, just kept it on my computer. And then my wife was like, well, you're going to release that? And I was like, I'm not releasing that. Are you crazy? Yeah. And then she was just on me every day. She was like, you need to put it out. Seriously, you need to do something with that. Because she heard it. And it was something that she had never heard from me before. So we talked to the guys at Don't Be Afraid. And they were really interested. And I love those guys because the way they handled it, they didn't want to do any press release, any reviews, all this. They were going to release it on my mom's birthday, you know, everything. Yeah. So there's, you know, a method and a message to it. So now when I play it, it really means something. So now if I play it and you guys dance, then I'm, I'm like I said, I'm proud of you guys for accepting something that I did for a specific reason, even if you don't know that reason, you know? So I think somehow deep down I get that feeling that maybe maybe they can feel it, you know? Like, man, there's something in that song that just gets me. And that's what I loved about early Detroit techno, whether it was Amazon from UR or Drexia Track or Kenny Dixon. There's some little secret spice, you know what I mean? That yeah, you yeah. just kind of go, good grief. Yeah. It just it gets in you and it just kind of grabs a piece of you and it sticks with you. That's why I think Detroit's the foundation is because the music is timeless. Yeah. Yeah. What were the circumstances that led to you starting your different project? That was when I, I really wanted to do some out-the-box, harder, darker techno. Not on a funky tip like, like I normally like to think, but funky in a creepy way. I, it's almost like, um, oh, God, Tim Burton. Yeah. When he first started coming out with all these things, there was something beautiful about Edward Scissorhands or, you know, there was something really, it's such a creepy concept. Yeah, yeah. This guy has scissors for hands. But then you see him and all the ladies are like, oh, can you cut my hair? And there was something lovable and, and fantastic about his darkness. And I wanted to have a side of me 
like that. And the reason it happened was because I had so many tracks that I had made that I felt I couldn't release as DJ Bone. Right. Because it didn't fit me. And that's when I said, oh, I need an alter ego, you know, who can be responsible for this, you know. And we started out with some good stuff, and it gets darker and darker, but not in a evil, twisted way, just in a mood kind of way, gut-wrenching, yeah. you know. So I'm finishing up an album as different, too. Nice. It'll come out uh, this year. Is that going to come out on subject? No, that's coming out on Don't Be Afraid. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to do a DJ Bone album, so I, hopefully we can see if they parallel each other. You know, not good versus evil, but just, you know, the light side and the dark side, basically. What, and release them within months of each other or at the yeah. same time? Or? No, within a, like maybe a month and a half, two months of each other. Okay. So you have DJ Bone on Subject Detroit, then different on DBA. And then you can really draw the, the distinction and say, yeah, those are definitely not DJ Bone tracks. You know, even though I made them, yeah. And do you always indulge your different side when you're playing? Uh, I do, you know, it, it, it depends. I like the fact that I can vibe off the crowd. Well, like last night was a perfect example. I was in a mood to really just bang out some techno last night. <laughs> I, was, I was just ready to go at it from the beginning. So the first 20 minutes of my set was really banging, you know, and it was pretty, you know, linear. But then I could just feel that the, I could feel the vibe of the people were like, you know, they wanted some funky stuff. And I seriously was doubting that at 4.30 in the morning, you know, I thought they were ready to just go for it and then go to bed. You know, like, yes, okay, thank you. Uh, you know? Not here. But it was so funny. So I could just brought it over to a little bit of the funky stuff and then it just erupted and that was it. So... I could still keep that pace and that tempo, but I could make it more side to side and less up and down. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that your next release on subject is a collaboration with Detron. Yeah. That's an interesting pairing. <laughs> How did you guys come together? We, I've known Detron for a long, long time. I met him, I guess it was probably in the UK at a party, but every year when we have the festival in Detroit, he would bring his wife, and we would talk, and then me and my, my fiancé at the time, uh, who's my wife now, and Detron and his wife, we would go have a nice big dinner in Greek town, have a nice big Greek dinner. So every year is tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bones and the Detrons. <laughs> we go have a nice Greek meal, you know, every year. And I thought it was hilarious. So the one year, I remember, he was a huge Kenny Dixon fan. So he's like, that's Kenny Dixon Jr. And I was like, yeah. He's like, Can you know him, right? Yeah. Introduce me. I said, Okay. I said, I don't know if you want me to, man. Because <laughs> I know Kenny's, you know, he's a yeah. Detroit guy. Detroit people don't pay attention to anything yeah, outside yeah. Detroit. So if it gets on our radar, it's got to be something good, you know? So I was like, okay. So I go up and I say, hey, Kenny, what's up? He's like, hey, Bon, how you doing, man? I said, <laughs> this is my friend, Detron. And Kenny just goes, Detron? Sound a little bit like Detroit. <laughs> and then he turned and he walked away. <laughs> wow. And that was it. And Detron <laughs> standing there like, uh, okay. <laughs> so we just kept in contact and all that. And recently I played a gig with him in Switzerland. And it was so amazing because he played a ton of amazing deep techno on three decks. And how he did it, I have no idea because the frequency should have just been horrendous. And he was just tweaking it so perfect. So he played, I played, and then we actually tag team and did back to back for a while. And it went down really, really well. And we loved it. 
So we stayed, you know, me and my wife, and we stayed at, uh, at Detron Sam and his wife's house for a few days with their kids and everything. And it was lovely. And we stayed up at night drinking wine and, you know, talking and having raclette. And it was cool because then we came up with the idea to do something together. I said, well, let's do a series of EPs and then we'll just progress it. So the first one is like a split. I'm on one side, you're on the other side. And then we can either update the sound or remix each other's tracks and then collaborate. You know, so it's called the storytellers. And instead of an A side and a B side, it's a B side for Bone and a D side for Detron. And he came up with some of the most amazing. I played this track last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah, people were cheering. That's what I love. They don't even know it. And they were cheering for it because it's a really good track. Yeah. Yeah, so that's coming out uh, beginning of May, I think. So there was a period in your DJ career not long ago where you were kind of turning away gigs and things were just a bit quieter for you. Do you feel like, I mean, I think in the past two years, you're back a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, I always tell people I, I'm, I've always been here. You know, I've never really go away. There's a lot of clubs that I remember, there's a lot of clubs who would, wouldn't book me, like the big, some big name clubs, you know. Mm. And I would just joke. I said, look, I've been DJing before they were even here, and I'll be here when they're gone. So, you know, and I'm fine. I've been doing pretty well, even though I haven't played such and such clubs. So it's no sweat. So when they come at me with an offer, and it's, to me, disrespectful, mm. instead of just being mean and saying, you know, man, you know, get out of here with that shit, and, you know. I, we just basically quote them the most ridiculous fee possible. <laughs> That's my way of saying no. You know, so we, I turned down a lot of gigs, you know, yeah. because they were, either weren't very serious or they weren't very respectful. Because I'd rather be making music and I'd rather be in my family. You know, so now people are more serious when they approach me because of my refusals. They know they can't half-ass it and come at me with some whack, you know, offer. And they know when I do accept it, when I come, I'm going to try and tear the roof off of the building. Mm. I'm not going to come in and just say, oh, I got my money, you know, I'm just going to play. No, I'm going to come in, I'm going to try and do some serious damage every single time. Yeah. I want to make it so that nobody ever wants to play after me. Yeah. You know? But they do invite you back. Yeah. As long as the people don't tear the club up, they'll have me back. Reading interviews with you this week, one word that comes up um, again and again is kind of unsung, you know, Detroit's oh, unsung hero. I know, I hate that. You hate that? Yeah, only because I've been around so long and I've done so much. So it's almost like when people use the word unsung, it's to benefit them, not me. Right. They use it in the term of, you know, he deserves more credit. No, I think they use it in the term of we just found out about him. You know, if they did their history, they would know. And they would look at my resume and they say, oh, my God. You know, he's one of only four DJs to do a live session with John Peel. You know, right. you've got to do your homework. So the unsung thing, it's, it's gotten old. Like, all my residencies in Detroit, all the productions I've done, you name it, it's, it's just so much. But I think it's, it's partially my fault as well because I stay pretty low-key for the most part. I don't do any documentaries. I hate, I hate that. I'm doing a documentary myself. Right. Because I can tell my story better than anyone else can. So I've been approached for all these documentaries. Oh, we want to talk about Detroit. We want to get your input. I always say no. Because A, I don't know you, and B, why should I trust you to tell my story? You know what I mean? It's very important and very, you know, it's very personal. So you say you purposefully stayed in the shadows a little bit? Yep, definitely. I mean, I like it better. 
Because if you're on the cover of the magazines or if you're hot and trendy, they're going to make money building you up and they're going to make the same money tearing you down. So if I can stay like this without all that, I'm good. Because, you know, consistent for me, I'm good. So you've never felt that you weren't getting the recognition you deserved? Well, I felt that a lot. But I just handled it. You know, I couldn't rant and rave and call up Mix Mag and say, where are you going? Put me on the cover. No. I mean... I came to grips with the fact that it's more genuine when people find me. And that's kind of been my MO from the beginning. We don't do release dates with the Subject Detroit releases. We put them out. And then when you find it, that's when it came out. You know, you find it at your own pace. I got people hitting me up now, and they're like, man, I just found the vibe, and this and that. So we'll get an order. It's my order record. And then about a week later, the same person will order like 12 back catalogs. Because they finally went and listened back. I think that's cool. You know, I like finding music that way. Yeah. I don't want to have it bombard me on the radio, in the supermarket, at the airport, on the TV, to the point where I know the song, even though I hate the song. Yeah. I want to find it, and then it's special. I'm like, damn, I remember exactly when I heard that track for the first time. You know, I think that's really cool. Before we finish, you mentioned it there, the John Peel session you did in 2001. Yeah. Like. I think it was the other um, one. Yeah, I think only before that, only Richie Horton, Jeff Mills, and... Uh, Dave Clark. Dave Clark had done it before you. Yeah. So what did it involve? It was just a performance at Made Avail, that's right? Yeah, it, it, was, it was amazing, man. I was shocked because I'm in Detroit, and I get a call. I'd just done a mix CD for this company, Undercover Music Group. And I get a call, and they say, yeah, John Peel has been in touch with us, and he wants to get you for a, a session. And I'm thinking, okay, I know who he is. What is a session? What does it in, entail? And they were basically like, well, he wants you to come in live studio audience and play. I was like, you're joking. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> and they were serious as a heart attack. So I'm like, okay, let's, let's set it up. So we set it up, and everything's running smooth. The day of, John Peel calls the house where I'm staying. I'm in Maida Vale. I'm staying at a friend's house. And he calls and he's like, yeah, we're so excited, you know, but the response is a little bigger than we expected. Mm -hmm. We gave away tickets on the air and this and that. We gave out certain passes because they limit the amount of people. Right. <clears throat> he said, but we can't really contain this one. I'm thinking, what do you mean? He said, we had to move it to a larger studio. Wow. And I was like, oh. So he ended up setting up his booth like in the wee little corner in the back of this massive studio. And I'm like, holy crap, are you kidding me? It was amazing. He, they had like drinks and hors d'oeuvres for people. Uh, the setup was perfect. And then I get there and it's just literally like a room full of people. You know, John Peel comes, opens the door, carries my records in, you know. He's a, a G. He was the shit. I mean, I was like, it's okay, I got it. He's like, no, no, it's an honor, man. It's an honor for me to carry the bag. Okay. Then I go in this little area to wait out, you know, until people are filing in. And um, he comes in. He's like, I got some special guest here to see you. And I had tried to call everyone I knew, you know, like, come down to Main Avail Studios. And then in walks Dave Clark and his son, Bruno, who was like maybe, I don't know, four months old, five months, with these headphones on. And he's like, you're the first DJ my son's going to hear besides me. Nice. You know? And I had talked to Dave, and he was like, oh, I can't make it to Made Avail. Sorry, mate. You know, I can't do it. And he just showed up, you know, and then Colin Favor, Colin Dale, Brenda Russell. So it was really amazing and humbling. I think that's the most humble I've ever been for a set. 
is playing for John Peel, and he's right there. He's the whole time. And at the end of it, he just comes up and he's, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's amazing, man. I listen to that mix all the time. Was he a known figure in, in Detroit, in America? Not really. Put it this way, the name, yes. Yeah. But the music he played, no. Basically, everyone in Detroit regarded him as England's mojo. That's what I was going to say, yeah. That's exactly how they described him. So once you said that, it was instant respect. Right. So they didn't have to know exactly what he played. And they're like, John Peel. Oh, John Peel? Yeah, he's like England's mojo. Really? You know, that's yeah. it. Enough said. That's all they had to, to say. And then John Peel was respect, you know? But yeah, that was a huge. That's one of the biggest, biggest, biggest highlights ever. Nice. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah. Cheers.